three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. Liftoff. Americans return to space as Discovery clears the tower. Welcome to Simply Youth Podcast. New episode every Friday on Spotify and more platforms. Charizan Ashi was born and raised in Lebanon before going off to earn degrees in everything from engineering and geology to business administration in France and the United States. He is a former vice president and a professor emeritus of electrical engineering and planetary science at the California Institute of Technology. He joined NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 1970 and acted as its director from 2001 until he retired in 2016. He has worked on many of NASA's flagship missions and discoveries, including the Cassini Titan radar and the Curiosity rover. These have revolutionized our understanding of the universe. Thank you, Dr. Lashi, for joining us today as part of our Trip of a Stars mini-series where we hear from leading NASA scientists. So my first question is, what is NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory? How did it start? What was your work back then? And what is JPL working on now? Uh, well, uh, JPL, or the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, was started in the 1930s. And as the name indicated, it was started to work on uh, jets, you know, and rocket. Uh, and it was started by Caltech, by the university. So there was a group of students and a professor who were doing research on propulsion. And uh, they went, uh, you know, to the hills, you know, not too far from the university where they were doing some testing. And that's what got it started. So moving forward, uh, almost a lot of the original work on rockets was done at the Jet Propulsion Lab, but starting in the 1960s, uh, we moved to build spacecraft, you know, particularly for deep space exploration. So JPL became the leading American organization for exploring the planets. And uh, today uh, there is about 7,000 engineers who are working there. I call them explorers because they are all there because they love you know, the exploration. And almost the majority of the American planetary mission and many of the Earth's orbiting missions uh, are being uh, developed or have been developed at JPL, including the most recent Mars landing that you probably have seen on it. So that's one of the more spectacular, uh, you know, kind of event. And an interesting fact is that even that the JPL is owned by NASA, but all the employees are university employees. So all the employees there are Caltech. So in a sense, uh, and Caltech is a small university. It has about 2000 students, both graduate and undergraduate. Uh, and it's a private university. So in a sense, it's a private university, which is managing uh, the US planetary program. It's, it's an unusual arrangement, but that's in the US, that's not uncommon. You know, there are a number of what we call national labs. Uh, you know, MIT that you are familiar with had Lincoln Lab, which does a lot of similar, or Draper Lab, which do a lot of similar, uh, you know, arrangement between the university and, uh, and, uh, and the research laboratory. So over the past eight years, we've seen a fast evolution in space technology. Uh, what is something that you never imagined will exist in a million years? Oh. <laughs> well, uh, let's see. Uh, considering I'm much older than many of your audience, probably uh, the technology has uh, evolved in an amazing way over the last 50 years. I mean, I remember the days when I was your age and I was a student. Uh, we used to have punch cards. You probably wouldn't know what those are, you know, for the computers. 
to do that. And we used to have to go to a computer center, you know, to do uh, all our calculation. Today, I have a lot more power in my iPhone than uh, in a computer, which was a full building. And that had a lot of implication to our space activity because one of the key challenges on our space missions uh, is to keep, uh, have high capability electronic, but to be very lightweight, doesn't consume a lot of power uh, because you don't have access to big powerful, uh, you know, power sources. So we rely either on solar cells or some other, uh, you know, power sources. So that has evolved tremendously. I mean, things I wouldn't have imagined. I mean, they were science fiction, you know, 50 years ago, these were science fiction. Now it's reality. And thinking about, you know, roving around the planets, you know, like we're doing on Mars now. Uh, so these were some of the things which uh, would have been hard to believe at that time. Uh, the other one, which is also connected with this revolutionary iPhone uh, is uh, the communication. Uh, again, when I was in school, I had to reserve time at the post office to call my parents in Lebanon. Now I don't even think, I'm sure you don't think about it. You just pick the iPhone anywhere you are around the world and, and you call. And uh, that also had tremendous impact on how we do space exploration, because now I can control a spacecraft from home. I can sit on my iPad and control a spacecraft you know, that, uh, you know, was appropriate password. And that served us a lot during this pandemic because many of the centers have been closed, but still we were able to launch a mission to Mars and operate it with a lot of the employees actually working, uh, you know, working from home. So these things have done, and it's interesting because not only we benefited from the advance in electronic, but also a lot of the space activity has driven the technology which led to the iPhone. I always like to give one example. I'm sure there is a camera in your iPhone and not many people know that the focal plane of that camera, you know, where, where we uh, detect the pictures that was developed at JPL many years ago for some of our space telescopes, because we wanted to develop a focal plane or what we call them CCD charge coupled devices, which are very low power, very low weight, you know, for our spacecraft. So somebody, an entrepreneur said, you know, we can apply that technology, you know, to, uh, to the iPhone. And that's what led to incorporating these cameras in the iPhone. And that's just one example of many technologies that we developed over the last few decades, which have become part of the economy today that everybody uses. So uh, today marks eight years, seven months, and 14 days since the Curiosity rover landed on Mars. After making its 450 million kilometer journey from Earth, the rover had to decelerate from a speed of 20,000 km, uh, kilometers uh, per hour to zero in just 15 minutes to ensure a safe touchdown onto the red planet's surface. Uh, can you tell us more about the trial and error process during designing the rover, its landing, and what the data from this mission has uncovered? Um, uh, Leah, that's a very good question, and clearly you did your homework, you know, in figuring out, uh, you know, the speed and so on. That's why we call the entry, descent, and landing as the seven minutes of terror. I mean, it's literally like terror, <laughs> because as you said, we are coming at an extremely high speed. And we have about seven minutes from the time we hit the top of the atmosphere until we land on the surface. And of course, we have to land very softly, otherwise we damage, you know, the rover. Uh, 
So basically, and, and to give you an idea, the speed or the energy in the capsule as we're coming into the atmosphere is the equivalent of 180,000 race cars going at full speed, you know, probably driven by a Lebanese driver. Uh, so, uh, so we have all that energy and we have to dissipate that energy in seven minutes. So we have a series of things. First, we have a heat shield. So when we slam in the atmosphere, the heat shield slows us down. It's similar to when you are driving in a car, put your hand outside, you feel pressure. But here we're going at very high speed. The heat shield will get hotter than 2000 degrees centigrade because of the energy being dissipated. So that's almost the uh, heat of the surface of the sun and the heat sheet have to survive. Then after that, once we get uh, halfway into the atmosphere, then we open a supersonic parachute, the biggest parachute ever built to do that. And uh, that has never been done before. So we have to do a lot of development and testing and verification to do that. So that slows us even some more. Then uh, we drop the heat shield and we have retro rockets you know, which will fire to slow us even more. Uh, and then we hover over the surface and then we sky crane the rover like uh, you get something from a helicopter. You are sky craning it down to have it come down and touch uh, very gently on the surface. So literally there are hundreds of things which have to happen. You know, dropping the heat shield, opening the parachute, uh, detecting the surface, knowing how far we are from the surface. And all of that has to be done autonomously because it takes about 10 to 15 minutes for the signal to come from Mars to Earth. So uh, that's how far Mars is. So you cannot sit down and joystick it. You cannot say, well, let me move this, let me do that part and so on. So all of it, the spacecraft had to be intelligent enough to do that. And to make it a little bit more challenging, we want to land in a very specific area because we are interested scientifically in a very specific area. So the, our navigation has to be very accurate so we arrive to Mars at the right time, in the right location, at the right angle. And remember, Mars is moving. So, uh, so it's not like a fixed target that you can home in, so you have to track it. And then when we get in the atmosphere and we're getting close to landing, we usually have cameras which will look at the surface and compare the images with images we have in store in the computer of the spacecraft taken from satellites to tell it where actually to land. So as it's coming down on the parachute and then hovering, it has to move to pick the right area, make sure it doesn't land over a big rock, you know, and, and, and tilt. So a lot of that required a lot of development and a lot of testing and a lot of new technology that we have done. So that's why we call it the seven minutes of terror. And if you watch people in the mission operation room, you know, you can see them very nervous sitting down, waiting to the signal, you know, to come in. Every time an event happened, like the parachutes open, everybody cheers. Then the retro rocket fire, everybody cheers. And of course, once we get the signal that we have landed softly, that's, that's an amazing experience. I mean, I have been on many mission on spirit and opportunity and curiosity, as well as other missions like the Cassini mission, when there are similar events, not exactly the same. Uh, I mean, it's a very tense moment, but also it's very exciting. And part of the tension is because the team working on it, uh, typically uh, at the peak, it's about like a thousand engineer working on a big project like this. 
they have worked for, let's say, 10 years on this mission. And everything depends on those seven minutes of terror. If one thing goes wrong, then, you know, we crash. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's a very tense, but very exciting and very uh, fulfilling time. So, as you mentioned earlier, um, there was the Perseverance rover that uh, landed on Mars in the 2020 mission. And so, we were wondering what you, uh, what you hope to learn from the Mars 2020 mission and specifically the Perseverance rover. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's at the heart of what we're doing. I mean, our long-term goal uh, for many of our missions, uh, planetary in particular, is to see if there are other environments where life could have evolved. So in the case of Mars in particular, uh, we believe that Mars was formed at the same time as Earth. You know, it had water on the surface, it had an atmosphere, and we know that because of some of the mission we did and the composition of the rock and the fact that we see dry rivers, you know, on Mars, similar to what you see in North Africa, like in Egypt or in Saudi Arabia, where you see what looks like drainage channels, but they are dry now. That means there was water in the past and the water has either evaporated or have been frozen. So a key question is, could have life evolved if it was similar to Earth? Could have life evolved like Earth? And if it did, how far it did it go in its evolution? And if it did not evolve, why not? So the series of missions were planned, we planned them like 20, 30 years ahead of time in general, not the technology, but the objective. So starting with, uh, uh, it was in, in the late 90s where we had a mission called Pathfinder where we landed a rover which was about the size of a shoebox uh, just to learn, you know, how do you drive? You know, how do you remotely drive autonomously? And then as we learned with that one, then we did Spirit and Opportunity, which were about the size of a desk on that one. And then from that we learned, so we went to Curiosity, which is the size of a car. And now uh, Perseverance is about the same size as Curiosity. And what we have on these missions, we have a number of instruments like in a chemistry lab at the university, like at AUB in your chemistry lab. So we have instruments which have like x-ray machine to look at the composition of the rocks. Uh, we have uh, uh, gamma ray spectrometers to look at the, the composition. We have oven that we take sample, put them in the oven and heat them to see what gases are being emitted. Uh, microscopes, you know, to look at the detail of the, the mineralogy in the rocks. Uh, we have a very powerful laser which zaps the rock and see what's being evaporated from them, you know, at a distance. So it's almost like a chemistry lab, but you have to take that chemistry lab and put it in your car. So that was, there was a lot of technology development which was done in them. So Perseverance is the first step where we're going to drive around, look at very interesting rock, drill in the rock and take sample about the size of your pencil and maybe do about uh, 24 to 36 samples and put them in a canister and leave them in a location on Mars. And then in four years from now, or six years from now, we're planning to send a second mission, which will land very close to where that container is, send a little rover, grab the container, bring it back to the lander, put it in the nose of a little rocket, you know, about maybe my size or a person's size, launch that sample up in orbit, put it in the orbit, send another spacecraft to rendezvous with it, 
and bring it back to us. Now, one thing I should have mentioned also, you know, every time we do a mission, we do some, some innovation, like, uh, you know, Hadi mentioned earlier. We want to try to continuously keep innovating. So on the Perseverance, uh, we put a little helicopter, you know, or, or a drone, if you want. Uh, that would be the first time ever we are flying something on a planet. Uh, it's a small drone and it's a technology experiment because that has never been done before. And so it's about like one and a half kilogram. Now you would say, what's the big deal? You know, you can go and buy it from a store. The difference is on Mars, the pressure in the atmosphere is 1% of pressure on Earth. So it's, if you are flying at about 30,000 meter altitude on Earth, which have never been done before. So we had to do a lot of development about lightweight electronics, all the computers, the landing programs, cameras, power, everything had to be done in one and a half kilogram. And it had to be completely autonomous flying, you know, on Mars and it's all solar power. So that helicopter will be doing our first attempt of flying it probably will be in early April. So also like moving away from Mars, let's talk about Cassini Titan radar. So what did you learn from the first global topographic map of Titan? Well, you know, I started my career in using satellite radar for doing mapping both for planet and Earth. Uh, we did a mission to Venus where we mapped the whole planet. We did more recently a mission to Titan, which is a satellite, you know, of, uh, you know, of Saturn. But also we did a lot of missions on Earth. And basically about, uh, that was in the early 2000s. Uh, we flew a mission on the space shuttle, which basically mapped the whole topography of the Earth. Uh, before, the way we used to do topography is you take stereo images and you have hundreds of people sitting down looking with stereo machines to get contours and then more recently people to digitize it so you have it in a digital map like on your iPhone. But we developed a technique which is called radar interferometry, which we uh, kind of developed and discovered in the uh, late 90s, early 2000. And we flew that on the space shuttle and that allowed us to get the global map of the earth directly in digital format and get the topography. So all the topography images you see today, like when you see the weather maps and in 3D or people use it for flight or uh, you use it for hiking if you are using a digital uh, system. All of these were based on that technology that we developed here at JPL, and I was a principal investigator. Uh, the other key discovery, which came kind of from it, not from the topography, but uh, using that radar system, when we first flew it, uh, we did some mapping over North Africa, and we discovered that in the desert, we are seeing all kinds of rivers, what looks like uh, drainage channels of river. And what was happening, the radar, because we use microwave, we actually were penetrating through that sand and mapping all the drainage channels, you know, which were, which had water in them probably six, 7,000 years ago, maybe during the pharaohs. So uh, there is a belief, you know, that was a lot more lush and furs and on which existed at that time. And then because of the change in the weather and the climate, that area became dry and it got covered by sand. So that was a major archeological discovery, which led to me being involved in a number of archeological, uh, you know, uh, expeditions in the Middle East and uh, Oman, uh, uh, in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, and then in Western China. 
you mentioned being on the UAE uh, Space Agency Advisory Board. So I was wondering if you can tell us about the HOPE mission and uh, what it means for like space enthusiasts in the Middle East. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very, very delighted and excited that the UAE have decided to develop and fly that mission, which have been successful because it went in orbit about a month and a half ago. Um, and, and I think that's a very bold move from the UAE. I think it's very important for countries in the Middle East to be engaged in exploration in general and space exploration in particular. Uh, and, and for and, uh, about five or six years ago, they asked me to be on their advisory board, me and a number of other scientists from around the world to be on their advisory board. And, and our work was mostly in helping the UAE lay down a long-term vision of what, uh, what should their space agency do. Thing which is very important is the inspiration for the young people. There was a lot of excitement, you know, when I usually used to go, when I go to the UAE and I go visit the universities. So it created a lot of excitement in the young people about doing exploration in general, not only to do uh, space exploration, but also do exploration in general. I watched uh, the, when it went in orbit in real time, I was being inter interviewed by one of the uh, stations in, uh, in the UAE. And uh, it was a very exciting time. And I could see the excitement, you know, uh, in the people who were in the mission operation room in, uh, in Dubai. So I hope, uh, and I'm sure that will continue because now they are thinking about the next major you know, step what, uh, what the UAE was planning to do. Thank you for inviting me and uh, I'm excited to see young Lebanese people, uh, women and men, you know, uh, uh, wanting to do this thing and are, you know, working in that area. And uh, salamu alaikum. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Simply Youth Podcast for more content.